Well, what I'd like to do is the following, is to praise Jesus that we had a boy. And we're good now. We're good. I'd like to make a few introductory comments um, about the book of Isaiah and Isaiah 53. Then I would like to speak Isaiah 53 from memory. And then third, and certainly not least, with the time remaining, we want to work verse by verse through chapter 53, okay? Um, the book of Isaiah, uh, in many ways, is like a miniature Bible. You know, the, um, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters, and the Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has two parts, an Old Testament part and a New Testament part, just like the Bible. The Old Testament part of Isaiah is 39 chapters just like the Old Testament books are 39 in number. The New Testament part of Isaiah is 27 chapters, just like the New Testament is 27 books. The opening chapter, chapters 40 through 66, the opening chapter of that New Testament portion of Isaiah begins with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, just like, of course, the Gospels opens with John. And the New Testament Everyone with me? Okay. The New Testament part of Isaiah ends the same way the Bible ends, with a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, within that New Testament part of Isaiah, it is neatly divided into three units of nine chapters each. And right smack dab in the middle of that is what many believe to be the greatest prophecy in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53. And the reason people think it's so great is because it's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and 1 Peter. The first six books of the New Testament plus 1 Peter say, hey, you want to know who Jesus was, where he was going, and how he got there? Go back. Go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, the kings shall shut their mouths at him. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they have not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he openeth not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off unto the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. 
and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he has done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, he hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his day, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bare the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. The word of the Lord. Let's dig into Isaiah. Now, we're very thankful that our Bibles have chapter and verse divisions, but we have to keep in mind that it always hasn't been this way. Chapter divisions first pop up in the Bible in about the 13th century AD, during the Crusader period. That's when they first enter into the Bibles. And verse divisions are even later. Verse divisions don't come into your Bible until, I mean, God didn't say to Moses, chapter 14, verse 5, chapter 14, verse 6. I mean, we're thankful for them, but that's not how it happened. Chapters, 13th century, verses about 1551 AD, right around the advent of the printing press. And so, like I said, even though we're thankful we have them, sometimes they can throw us for a loop, or sometimes it's like having a commercial break at the worst possible point in the drama that you're watching. And that's kind of what happened here. 52.13 is 53.1. 52.13 should be 53.1. Because if you start at 53.1 instead of 52.13, it's like you're watching Game 7 of the World Series, and, and you don't tune in until the top of the fourth. It's like you just missed the whole first way, you know, through the lineup and you're asking questions about why didn't Clayton Kershaw start and why would you start Hugh Darvish and how are we down four to nothing already? It's all these questions. So 53-1 is 52-13. Now let's start where we should then at 52-13 versus 13, 14, and 15. This is our first building block right here, our first building block. And it's going to give us a thumbnail sketch a short, very short perspective of the Messiah's glory and his humiliation. 13, 14, and 15 function as kind of like a trailer for a movie. You see it, you know, a one and a half minute or a two minute clipped, condensed version of the whole drama. That's what's going on in 13, 14, and 15. Behold, that's the Hebrew word chene. Can we say chene? I'm watching you. It's a literary device that's used by many Old Testament writers to arrest the attention of the person hearing or reading. So in other words, wake up, he's saying, pay attention, because what is about to follow is super important. Behold, my servant. Now, as you know, everybody knows servants were a common thing in the world of the Bible. The word is used like, the word obed, the word is used like a thousand times. It's just a lot, but... But what's interesting is the term my servant or Yahweh's servant, not many people in the Bible have the privilege of saying that they were called that, my servant, God's servant. As you know, Job does and Abraham and David and a few, and this person does, as we'll see. 
my servant. Now, calling him a servant helps frame our understanding about who we're reading about. Servants in the world of the Bible, as you know, you, you had to forsake your own goals. You had to forsake your own ambitions and your own dreams. And you had to submit yourself to the will of your master to please your Lord. And it just gives us a little, a little peek inside the mindset of Jesus on how he wanted that he, he complied his will to his father's will. Behold, my servant, okay, what is he going to do then? He shall deal prudently. Prudently, that's another way of saying that this servant is going to be crowned with success. Publicly crowned with success. Oh, what's going to happen to him during this crowning of success? He's going to be exalted and extolled and be very high. So it's kind of like stairs. You have like a exalted, extolled, and very high. A one, two, and a three. It's a, an a ascension. And some people think it might be a hint to the resurrection, the ascension. And then, because the, the phrase there, very high, where he's at, the only person who's ever mentioned exalted like that is God the Father. And so it could be a way of saying one, two, three. He's going to resurrect. He's going to ascend, we would say, looking back. And he is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Okay? This is the crowning success. Guys, this was written in 700 B.C. 700 years. That's a long time. It's twice as old as our great country. Talk about precision. Let's continue. What happens next? Verse 14. As many were astonished at thee. So in other words, it is as if Isaiah the prophet is at home in Jerusalem. The Bible tells us he's married with children. He's at home minding his own business, as it were. And it is as if 700 year BC, right, that God picks him up, almost like quantum leaps him 700 years into the future, just a stone's throw away from where he lived to the site of Calvary, and then using his own background, using his own personality, using his own vocabulary, his own education, all that kind of stuff that made Isaiah who he was, he recorded, he composed without error what we would say happens this week. Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And so he sees here that people are like astonished at what's happening to the servant. The spectacle of this unparalleled suffering is causing people just, just to lose it. Looking at him, he goes on. His visage is so marred, more than any man. His form, more than the sons of men. This explains why the multitude who are passing by the cross are hor Now, you know this. The cross wasn't like a beautiful Thomas Kincaid picture, you know, on a hill far away. Well, it wasn't far away, but the Bible never says it was on a hill. In fact, it would have been the opposite of a hill. It would have been at the equivalent of like where the Burger King and the Taco Bell are over here like right on the main route going into the city. So everyone, what's the name of that street? Lake. So everyone walking on Lake, that's the point, who's going into the city, would see this, and the Romans would have considered it as an as a object lesson to deter crime because the sign would have been posted above the criminal's head, on the, whatever their charge was. What was Jesus' charge? 
king of the Jews. That's what he was charged with. So that's why the sign was above his head. So people walking by would think, well, I never want to start an insurrection and try and claim myself to be king because this is what happens to these kind of people. So this is, <laughs> excuse me, this is why his visage is so marred, beat up, twisted, just you can't even practically identify him as a human being when they were done with him. One reason why Pilate says, behold, the man. Oh, that's a man. It doesn't even look like a man. He was so disfigured. Let's continue. Verse number 15. Remember verse 15, 13, 14, 15 is just our like movie trailer, our minute and a half, two minute, taking the whole drama and just summoning it up for us. Verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. What's going on here? The death of the servant is going to do what? Well, the, my translation says sprinkle. Now, in our world, when we want you to take something very seriously, we tell you not to stand up, but to, to sit down, right? Like, you better sit down. I have something very important to tell you, right? This is what we do. In their world, in the world of the Bible, it was the opposite. People would stand up when something serious or grave was occurring. Like when Stephen is being stoned to death. Remember the Lord Jesus, what does he do? He stands up from his sitting on the right hand of the Father because he's so appalled at this. But in this instance, we have Gentiles. Verse 15 is the Gentile response to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the Israelite. We'll get there later. It's the Gentile. What do these Gentiles do? They rise up suddenly in reverential admiration of what just happened. That's, that someone died, someone was buried, and someone rose from the dead, and it could be publicly accounted for by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Or the word, or the word can mean to sprinkle as the high priest would go into the holy place, as you know, in the Holy of Holies once a year, and sprinkle the blood of atonement on the mercy seat, which Jesus does, as it were, as our high priest. Okay? So all of this does what? It causes the kings of the earth, Gentile kings, and by you know, trickling down their subjects to shut their mouths because of him. What does this mean? Um, when, uh, before Job was smitten with his trial, when Job would do the equivalent of being sent by his wife to go pick up milk and eggs or something at the grocery store, you know, it says that when he walked by, that, um, that princes refrained from talking that when he passed, nobles laid their hands on their mouth at the reverence they had for that man of God. Okay? And so that's kind of the sense here, is that, that they're so enamored with what Jesus did for them that, that they pay the greatest respect possible when they hear the good news, at least in their world. Continue. For that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they have not heard shall they consider. The word for seeing here means to perceive, to consider, like a, like kind of like a Charlie Chan or like a Columbo, like my dad used to watch, you know? Like you're very carefully going through the evidence of what the person is telling you. Now, I know we're talking about Gentile kings here, but just pause real quick. I, for the longest time, was praying that God would let me witness to a king and tell him about Jesus. Now, I wasn't specific about the nation. I just said, God, you give me the opportunity to share the gospel with the king of the earth, and I'll do it. 
And so I'm praying and praying and praying. Make a long story short, many years later, five, six, seven years later, of all places, I'm in Israel, of all places. I'm at the exact same spot, the same spot where Gideon was given his 300 men. Remember that story? Remember that? And I turn around, and then, and then out of nowhere, there he was, unannounced, just totally showed up, the president of Israel, the modern-day equivalent of a king. Right there. Cut a, a ribbon for an Arab-Jewish bike race. And I'm wearing a big bullseye that says, come beat me up, a, a big yellow shirt that says, Yehudim Leman Yeshua, which means Jews for Jesus. And there's secret service and bodyguards and consequences, you know. And I, this was a real answer to prayer. And I'm like, okay, let's just go for it. So I waited for my opportunity. I prayed, 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 went under the security fence, this big, giant, yellow bullseye, you know, walking through the detail, through the bodyguards, you know, these kind of with the earpieces and the guns and everything. And I just walked right up to him, the, the president, and I clearly told him this chapter, part of this chapter from memory. And when I was speaking to him, this is what the, reminds me of this word right here. He was seeing. He was inspecting. He just didn't take it in blind faith. He inspected it. He perceived it. He considered the evidences, and he listened intently, okay? And I gave him the Hadashah, the New Testament in Hebrew, and he took it. He was considering the like, considering the like of which has never been known. Someone has died for your sins and rose from the dead and descended into heaven. Now, 52, 13, 14, 15, remember that's, our, that's our, our prologue or introduction where Isaiah is going to foretell what kind of reception the Messiah would have among Gentiles. Now, let's go to the rest of the chapter. Verse 1 and following. Verse 1 and following. Now, verses 1 through 3. This is our first block. 1 to 3. Verse 1. Who hath believed our report? In other words, the prophet foretells, seeing down the the, the prisms of history, he foretells with wonder the disbelief among his own kin of the Messiah. And as someone who lived in Jerusalem for four long years, and who studied there, and who ministered there, and who evangelized there, and handed out gospel tracts all day long at the same place as the apostles did, it's tough, because even to this very day, the Jews don't believe in Jesus. Some do, but not much. Not 1% of Israelis believe in Jesus. Not one. Stay with me here. Not even 0.1, but point, approximately 0.01%. That's it. Believe in Jesus. Now it's changing because we're really making great headway into sharing the gospel to the Jews in the land. So great things are happening on that end. But still, there are stiff-necked and hard-hearted people who've rejected Jesus, as you know. Like, this is, when I told you that, and if I wouldn't have told you that was Isaiah 53, doesn't it kind of sound like the New Testament, what I just told you? you tell, this is why Isaiah 53 is forbidden in Judaism. You are not allowed to read it from the pulpit in the synagogue. You are not allowed to study it. And if you go home, whatever you do, don't read it. Well, what do you think people are going to do if you say, I mean, you know. But it sounds, it's so clear that it's talking about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and 1 Peter. You're telling me Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and Paul got it wrong? <laughs> right? Of course not. This is it. Go on. To whom of the arm of the Lord revealed? 
whenever the word arm or hand is mentioned in the Bible, even though it doesn't say it here, it's always the right hand. The hand of power and the clean hand. Like the right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. So the arm of the Lord means that this servant who's coming is an extension of God's body. No one was there to bring salvation. So God dropped his arm down, as it were, from heaven to earth, and he's bringing forth this servant. Verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. So now what we're doing is the prophet is taking us back to the origins, the beginnings of the servant of Jesus' life, the beginnings of his life. He, Jesus, we would say, looking at it from this way, shall grow up before him, God, as what? A tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. What's going on here? Now, Stay with me for a second. Remember how God instituted the, the Davidic kingdom that sons of David would rule and reign on the throne from Jerusalem? It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. David's first, and that's at about, we'd say, 1,000 B.C. Let's, let's picture that as this beautiful, gigantic oak tree. Okay, the, the sons of David ruling from Jerusalem. That tree existed through good times and bad for about 400 years. And then in 586 B.C., that throne, that line, that dynasty was cut off and cursed by Jeremiah in chapter 22, verse 30. Hence the tree, ba-boom, fell down. It was cut down by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So that tree stump, that tree stump representing the Davidic dynasty, right? It just, it lay fallow for 600 long years. And then about whatever you know, zero or the year one or whatever, in that tree stump, this tiny little green shoot, boop, sprouted out. The son of David is back, and he's back to rule and to reign. That's the idea here. This little tiny plant or shoot popping up again before God. But what is he going to look like? How is he going to act? Let's see, verse number two. He has no form nor calmness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. What does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean Jesus was ugly. That's not what it means when it says he has no form nor calmness. Look, all the Bible says it, that all of the pillars of the Jewish faith were all good-looking, handsome men. The Bible says. Joseph you know, like Joseph, the prince of Egypt, his Egyptian name means savior of the world, a type of Jesus in many ways. Joseph, the Bible in Genesis 39 calls him goodly. It means he's like a stud muffin, okay? That's what it means, basically. <laughs> Moses, the giver of the law. Moses, I don't know what parent doesn't think it, but Hebrews says, and when they saw that he was a beautiful, there was something striking about that child. Just something striking about him. And Moses was evidently, he didn't turn ugly. He stayed a handsome, beautiful man. The giver of the law. Then finally, we could do more. But finally, David, the founder, the sweet psalmist. It calls him ruddy, which is another way of saying he's a hunk. Okay? So whether you're the giver of the law, the founder of the Davidic dynasty, or Joseph, the prince of Egypt, they're all considered beautiful men like Michelangelo's statue kind of thing, okay? 
But what we have going on here, all it means is that, not that he was ugly, but he didn't have the form of an incarnate deity. They would say to themselves, when God comes down to heaven to earth, it's not going to be like Matthew 13, 55, where a carpenter's son? Are you crazy? With brothers named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and sisters, which means according to Matthew 13, 55, that after Jesus was born, there were still four more boys born and at least two girls. Crazy house. But probably a great house. <laughs> Lots of kids. <laughs> Lots of kids. And so the low condition he submitted himself to, this is the person who the wind and the sea obey him. And what does he do? Humbles himself just to become like us. That didn't sit well with the people in the swamp, the religious and the political elite who were pushing all the buttons and making everything work. Verse 3. So then what? Well, that makes him despised and rejected of men. That word men in Hebrew, guys, it means that. It means men of distinction. It means the people in the swamp, the congressmen, the senators, the judges, the lawyers, the people pulling all the levers. These people loathed him. But as we know, common people heard him gladly. And one of their own, remember Nicodemus in John 7:48. Nicodemus was part of the swamp, but Nicodemus became a believer, remember? And when Jesus started to get on the radar of this religious and political elite, and they were starting to look at ways to cut him off and take him down, Nicodemus stood up for him, remember? And Nicodemus said, do we judge someone? Do we kill someone before we hear them out? And then they turn on him, remember that? And they say, well, have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? In other words, no, they haven't. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He's familiar with sickness, with diseases with sadness, with trouble, with being hungry, with being thirsty, with scorn, with people making fun of him, all these kind of things. He could relate to us in every single way. But despite all that, what do these people do? They hid, as it were, their faces from him. In other words, literally and physically, whenever Jesus popped up on these people's radars, they hid like a leper was passing by them. They wanted absolutely, positively, nothing to do with him. And unfortunately, not only in most of the world, I just saw it today. I just saw it today in the paper that claiming non-religion is your religion, you with me, is now the number one thing in America. More than Catholics. Catholics are 23%. Protestants are 21%, according to the article. And non-religion is 23.1 or 2 or something. So more people now, which doesn't surprise us, you know, more than ever before in our history of our country, now I am nothing. I am nothing. And it's terrible. It's so sad that these kind of people, too, even today, they want nothing to do with him. They hide their face from Jesus. He is despised. So despised. Held in contempt is what the word means, and they esteemed him not. Verses 4 through 9, our next block, 4 through 9, we have a further account of the sufferings of the Messiah. Verse number 4, but surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So having set forth in verses 2 and 3 the punishment, the humiliation, 
the drama that Jesus had to deal with day in and day out, the prophet now tells the reason for it. Why did he go through all of this? We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. In other words, Isaiah being picked up from whatever he was doing, as it were, transported 700 years into the future, sitting down at the cross of Calvary, using his own background, personality, vocabulary, style, characteristics, whatever made him him, writing and composing the way he did without error. He sees these people passing by the cross in verse number four, passing by in these people, instead of understanding that he was bearing the sins of the world and their sins, they're imagining that he was suffering at the hands of God for his own sin, smitten of God and afflicted. Verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah is saying, Look, that word wound right there, that's the word chalal. Can we try that one? Chalal? Chalal. Not bad. He's, Isaiah sees him pierced through, like i.e. by a Roman soldier. Talk about the precision of this prophecy. Then he sees him what? Bruise. That word in Hebrew is, um, when you and I think of bruise, you know, you bump into the coffee table or something and it goes away in a week. That's not what happened to the Lord Jesus on that cross. He was not bruised. That Hebrew word there is daka. You want to try that one? Daka. Pretty good. And it means to crush or to pulverize something beyond any recognition of its original state. Just smashed. Why? Why did all this happen? He tells us, you don't have to guess, the chastisement or the price of our peace was upon him. It's kind of like later when Paul says in Ephesians, having Jesus having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the trouble between man and God, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, here we go, for to make in himself of two, Jew and Gentile, one man so making peace that he, Jesus, might reconcile both Jew and Gentile unto God into one person. So the reason he was smashed, like the next line tells us, the reason he was whipped and the reason he was beaten, the reason is why. So we instead can be made whole or complete as a person. He took it upon him for ourselves. Verse 6. Why? Why did he have to do that? Because in verse 6, all we like sheep are gone astray. People, humanity are portrayed here as simple sheep. We turn everyone to our own ways. We selfishly follow our own individual impulses and our own individual interests. So God had to, because we're sinners, had to do what? Lay on him the iniquity of us all. Now that word from lay in Hebrew, it's not like if I was to like, you want to put out your hand? Like lay this gently on her hand. That's what you and I think of when we think of lay, right? Just lay it down. But that word for lay in Hebrew is paga, and it means to smash. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, I just mean. It means to smash something. That's what happened. God the Father had to smash on him the sin of us all, the guilt that was rightfully ours. Verse 7, go on. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he openeth not his mouth. This verse shows the harsh 
and the cruel treatment that Jesus suffered, even though he didn't do anything to deserve it. Even Pilate says, I find nothing wrong with this person. I'm going to wash my hands. The Roman centurion sees the whole thing go down at the foot of the cross. And what does he say? Surely, this is a righteous man. So he's brought what? Like one of us, in a sense, is a sheep or a lamb. But he's brought as the Passover lamb in verse 7. As a lamb to the slaughter. As you know, the very second that he was being crucified on that cross, a stone's throw, a five-minute walk away, all the Passover lambs at that very second were being offered on the altar in Herod's temple. He's called here a sheep before her shearers is dumb. When I lived in the Holy Land, I had some really great privileges to kind of get windows into the past, into the world of the Bible. And so, of course, I would do things I would never want my children to do, you know, looking back, like going and living in the desert with Arabs who don't speak English in a semi-nomadic sheep goat world where there's no Wi-Fi, there's no cell phone reception, no one can hear you scream. I mean, you're in the desert, man. You know, and you can kind of begin to really relate to what it was like, I guess, in a way, to be an ancient Israelite, living in a tent with sheep. So you get a tent, you get a sheep, you're playing with the sheep, you become friends with it, you know. And then... You do. You shear it. See, we live, not that there's anything wrong with it, but we live in a padded pew, PowerPoint, hand sanitized, churchy world. We just do. Where there's orange mocha frappuccinos and frosted cupcakes in the back, which is not bad. It's just the world we live in. These people, hot, dusty, bloody, sweaty, earthy. So earthy. So I'm playing with the sheep. We shear it because you don't want to waste that beautiful textile. You know, you shear it, then we're gonna make, we're gonna slit its throat. Peter would have a heart attack, okay? But we slit its throat, and that blood. But they're Arabs, so they don't catch the blood. They don't, you know, the blood is just that. It's just a bloody mess, just blood everywhere. And you slit it open, and, and you take out the fat, and then you get the meat, and you cut it up, and you cook it, and then four or five, six hours after you were playing with this thing, it's literally in your tummy, and the whole time. You're doing this. You can't help but it's such a great object lesson. I wish I would have thought of doing it this morning. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I don't think Pastor would have let me. But maybe. I don't know. Maybe he would have. But the whole time, that little sheep, it, it, it complied with my will. It didn't open its mouth. It didn't do anything. It just sit there and it took it the whole time. And that's what Jesus did for us. Verse 8, he was taken from prison into judgment. What does that mean? It means the whole sense of his fake news trial was tainted with iniquity and illegal. He should have never been tried in the first place. Six illegal trials in one night. That's what it took for you to find him guilty? Is two or three liars who, who conspired together to say, oh, I heard him say that. Guilty, done, kill him. Six illegal trials in one night. Fake. The whole thing was fake. But that's what it took for the religious and the political elite to kill him. Who shall declare his generation? For he is cut off out of the land of the living. That word cut off, so accurate, so precise, this prophecy. That word cut off means he was taken by a violent death in a judiciary way. In other words, capital punishment if he had been a criminal. That's what the word means in Hebrew. Why did it all go down? Why would God let his son go through this fake trial and be killed? Right here. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He was killed for the children of God. 
Verse number 9. Then what happened? They, your translation might say he. Some of yours says they. It should be they. They made his grave with the wicked. The disgust the Romans and the Jews had for him was displayed even after his death. They probably just wanted to take his body, rip it off the cross, throw it into a common grave, and then just bury it. But of course, through God's kindness and God's care for him and God's providence, God fulfilled this prophecy with the rich in his death by raising up a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus was poor, as you know. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Jesus didn't have a place to lay his head. Yes, he could have, and he did, multiply bread and loaves like this. But you know what? I don't know. Maybe I do know for the reason to teach his disciples to trust. But he, his ministry was supported by the faith of women, particularly. The Bible tells of people named Joanna, people named Susanna, other people who lived in the Galilee who financially supported Jesus. It costs money to take Jesus and these 12 young kids following him on boat rides across the Sea of Galilee to go from here to there. It takes money to buy food for them. It takes money to spend the night in inns on the way. All these kind of things. Sure, he could have just multiplied, but sometimes he did it. And the kindness of these people supported his ministry. But still, it was in one hand and out the other because when he died, he didn't even have a place to be buried. So God raises up, as you know, in John 19, 38 and following, Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man whose gift was giving. And he said, look, I think the Lord Jesus is great. Why don't you just bury him in this tomb that I purchased a long time ago that no man has ever been laid in before? And there's his proper burial. Because he has done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. That preposition because could be translated although. Although he never offended in word. Although he never offended in deed. Still, all of this happened. Why did it happen? Verses 10 through 12 as we finish up. Verse 10. Because it pleased Yahweh to bruise him, to put him to grief. So in other words, the sufferings of Jesus were not by some random chance. And ultimately, it wasn't even the wickedness of his persecutors, which they're still guilty for. But the reason all of this went down, it was the good pleasure of his father to crush him and to make him what? The next line, an offering for sin. That word for offering is the, the Levitical offering for a trespass offering. In other words, if I stole 100 bucks from you or if I got my conscience convicted me, you know, or something like that, and I would have to pay you the 100 bucks back, not only that, I would have to pay you an extra 20. So in other words, the type of sacrifice Jesus was, if you believe in him, covers all your sins plus all those secret sins that nobody else knows about. All the sins to infinity and beyond are covered by him because he's a trespass offering. What happens then? What happens after he's sacrificed like an animal right here? He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. So the blessings of God upon the servant are couched or are put in, in a way that would have been the greatest for an ancient Hebrew. A long life and a big family. He'll have eternal life, we would say. He'll have a family more innumerable than the sands of the sea. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, God's plan for the world 
is going to be advanced. It's going to be worked out throughout human history because of my servant. Verse 11. Two more verses and we'll be done. Verse 11. He shall see of the travel of his soul and shall be satisfied. What's this mean? It's a tough verse to not to crack, but it means something like this. What got Jesus through that night? Remember in the garden, he's like, if this cup can pass, let it pass. But what got him through the night is the sense of joy to come after the suffering. The sense of joy to come after the suffering was present, according to this verse, in his mind. He knew what would happen after his heart stopped beating. Today you will be with me in, in paradise. That's what got him through it. Because he knew what was waiting for him on the other side. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. What does that mean? It means this is the prophetic. This is the future work of post-crucifixion. His knowledge, that means the salvation which he possesses and offers to men. That knowledge has been given. It has been imparted to his seed. We would say to his disciples, and they then will share that with the world to save or justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. These two things, the last two phrases, these are the two things that Jesus does now post-crucifixion. He makes people righteous by giving them salvation. And he does what? He carries the burden of your sin. And then finally, verse number 12. Therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great? He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Or in other words, the, the reward God the Father is going to give the Son for being a, my servant, being my faithful servant, is a, it's equal to the influence of the greatest kings of the world, the greatest treasures of the world. Why? Because he has poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He bare the sins of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. So the famous chapter ends with a fourfold reminder of who made our living hope possible. It reminds me of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Beloved, now, not later, not future, now, because of this, are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. That means a new body. It doesn't appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And here's the line. In every man that hath this hope. What hope? The hope of seeing Jesus in a new resurrected body. Every man that hath this hope in him, here it is, purifies himself even as he is pure. So the notion, the idea that we'll be meaning him again should clean us. It should sanctify us. It should get you to stop doing this. And it should get you to stop doing that. And it should get you to start doing this. It should get you to start living holier and holier. Because you know every day that goes by is another day closer that you will meet him. It's a hope. This living hope that we have is made possible by Christ, and here's how it's made possible. It's a privilege. This whole week is a privilege that flows to us from his death and burial and resurrection. This week, what happens this week, it saves us from our sin. We don't think about it too much, and we hear it all the time, so it's just like, eh. 
you know. But when someone you love or someone you know really well dies, and you know that they believe that Jesus was their, their savior, and they're in heaven, it makes a world of difference. It gives you a perfect peace. And if you're not sure, you think they might be in hell, like people in my life recently, it's just not good. It's not good. But to have that perfect peace that we're saved from our sin, that we're acquitted from any guilt, and that because of this week, we're accepted into God's favor, into God's family. This is our hope. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this church. Thank you for how great it's doing, how much you're blessing it. We pray you would continue to do so. Lord, thank you for this special week in the calendar. And help us, Lord, to take advantage of all the opportunities this week to go to church and to do Good Friday services and to, and to help in the community this week. And Lord, just we just pray that this would be a really, really special week that we could honor and glorify you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.